This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Francais, bonjour, and hello, everyone. Welcome to Conversations with the President. My name is Brad Regeer. The 2015 Truth and Reconciliation Commission report contained 94 calls to action, things that needed to be done in order for reconciliation to take place. In this episode, we're going to discuss call to action number 57, which calls for governments at all levels to educate civil servants on the history of Aboriginal peoples in Canada, treaties and Aboriginal rights, Indigenous law and Aboriginal crown relations. It says that this will require skills-based training in intercultural competency, conflict resolution, human rights, and anti-racism. In this episode, I will talk with two private lawyers who have dealt extensively with public servants in the course of their work about the kinds of changes that are needed and what those changes would mean for their practices. My first guest is Maggie Wenty, a partner from Ulthius Clear Townsend in Toronto. She's a member of Ontario's Serpent River First Nation. Maggie has a broad practice serving First Nation governments, their related entities, businesses, and not-for-profit corporations. She advises on treaty and Aboriginal rights in litigation and negotiation, human rights of Indigenous people, in particular in the child welfare system. She's appeared in courts of appeal and trial level courts in Ontario, Newfoundland and Labrador, and the federal court. She is a past president of the Board of Directors at Aboriginal Legal Services in Toronto and served as commissioner on the Ontario Human Rights Commission for nine years. We're discussing the TRC's calls to action number 57, which talks about improving Aboriginal Crown relations. My next guest is David Nawagabo, founding partner of Nawagabo Corbier in Aurelia, Ontario a firm that acts exclusively for First Nations individuals, communities, and organizations. He has represented First Nations in land claims, treaty and Aboriginal rights litigation and negotiation. He has appeared in courts at every level, including the Supreme Court of Canada in the landmark Chilcotin case. He's a founding member of the Indigenous Bar Association, and he's Anishinaabe from Whitefish River First Nation in Ontario. Welcome to the podcast, Maggie. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Maggie, you uh, you have a combined degree in law and social work. How does your how does your background in social work inform your legal practice? That's a really interesting question. And I think the answer to that question has changed a lot uh, throughout the course of my practice. So um you know, I did social work training at the same time as I did law training. And then at the U of T, there's this combined program. And uh, the sort of last years of your program are sort of involved in having placements, uh, social work placements that are legal oriented as well, and having um, some classes that sort of were called things like exploring the intersections of law and social work, etc. And I would say that originally, I didn't I didn't necessarily understand the utility of the social work training that I had. Um, and it's become more apparent to me over the course of my practice. And I think there's a few different reasons for that. And one of them is, um, you know, working for our First Nations governments and with uh, First Nations people, uh, I think, um, you know, there's a real increasing understanding of the ways in which 
intergenerational trauma has affected people and in the and communities and the ways in which uh, colonialism and, and racism historically has affected communities and, and their contemporary situations today. And those are things that I think ha I have, um, as they've been gaining increasing attention, really been interested in and kind of leaning into reading about to understand how that informs really on a very individual basis or on a community basis, how I interact with my clients uh, and trying to um, you know, do client counseling and working with them in a trauma-informed way, do my community meetings, understanding those things. And I think that that's something that I've really been able to access uh, and understand because of my social work training. And then the other thing is, is I just think as we, um, as I've moved forward in my practice over the years, I have kind of gravitated always to these sort of matters of social policy or social services delivery. And um, you know, assisting First Nations governments with, for instance, their uh, education authorities or their health authorities, and just really the kind of quotidian questions about uh, those things, you know, helping people with policies, um, etc. And then now I, I work a lot in the child welfare realm, not, uh, you know, not as counsel for parents, and not even really as counsel for First Nations generally, but as counsel for First Nations in developing their um, child welfare laws under the new act respecting First Nations, Métis, Inuit, Children, Youth and Families, which is called C92, uh, because it never got a short title. And that, in my social work background now has, it's become apparent to me how helpful it is, both because I, you know, think I can read and understand social work literature really well, but also, you know, I've worked in social services agencies over the years, and I have understanding about how social services agencies operate. And, you know, I have some understanding, although I never practiced as a social worker, and I'm not a registered social worker now, but I have some understanding about sort of what are the mentalities and the, you know, the sort of policy drivers that underlie social systems and now child welfare systems. So it's become increasingly important to me over the course of my training. And I think if you'd asked me while I was doing it, I would have said that I, you know, I didn't find that it was very useful at all. So I'm delighted that it's turned out to be useful. That's great. I do know you worked on the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society uh, versus Canada case about the inequality of funding for child services provided to First Nations children. What What is it about Canadian society and our institutions and law that allow this sort of inequity be, to be accepted? Do we need Do we need cultural competency training for civil servants? Would that help? I mean, so it's funny you phrase that in the past tense that I worked on that. I mean, I continue to work on it. I just filed a factum in that case the other day at the federal court. So yeah, I'm counsel for Chiefs of Ontario on that, and that's because there's a different kind of funding situation than in the rest of Canada for Ontario. But if you asked me, I actually don't think that the answer is that complicated in reality. I think it was something that I, again, I kind of used to grapple with and, you know, hopefully through experience have really understood that just, I mean, it's just really racism um, and money. And for years and years, uh, governments were able to get away with running systems that were not equal. And that is across the spectrum of social services that, and infrastructure and really just anything that First Nations people on reserve especially receive. And we've just, as a society, I think, accepted or be and benefited from and been extremely comfortable with a situation in which um, Indigenous or First Nations people on reserve aren't equal. And we've never 
given that, uh, uh, you know, a fair shake as a policy option. And people will ask me, well, how, how do you solve these really systemic problems of inequality and, and bad social outcomes or whatever? And I'm like, well, let's try equality as a policy choice, which is something that this, this country has never attempted before. And do I, to your question about, do I think that cultural competency training is something that will assist? Sure, I sure do. It can't hurt. So for starters, that's that's true. And But I think there's something to me in terms of working on these really complex matters of social programming reform, where because of the years of our acceptance of inequality in this country, we've, we've really First Nations people have lagged so far behind in terms of their outcomes. And as a result, I, I think that this is something that civil servants and, and frankly, you know, all Canadians, I don't want to just say civil servants, but certainly civil servants have grown uh, complacent about. Where I think the civil service comes in and the notion of cultural competency training becomes important is that I, I think we've grown complacent about it, but I also think that most of the civil service doesn't really understand what it looks like. And from the get-go, that's from the top all the way down, you know, the top of the civil service all the way down to, you know, entry-level positions, particularly in Indigenous services, is that people don't have any experience working with First Nations people. They don't have any experience having visited First Nations communities often, and they really don't understand the lived experience and yet purport to govern First Nations people as if they have a moral or intellectual or program-based authority over them, as if they understand their communities better than First Nations people themselves. And I think, to me, um, you know, the vast majority of Canadians have certainly, you know, not gone to certainly a remote reserve or a reserve that's extremely economically straightened. Some may have been to reserves near cities that are, you know, tend to, I don't want to say, you know, I don't want to draw a huge comparison, but, you know, can be economically better off. And the ability to go to a First Nations community and see it and see the good and the bad and, um, you know, what the years of neglect have done just purely with respect to the infrastructure even of what uh, First Nations communities look like, I think could go a long way to helping, um, you know, people in the civil service understand uh, the situation that First Nations are coming from and also understand their strengths and just kind of overcome those stereotypes. I was, I remember several years ago, I was at a meeting with a bunch of different um, people from a bunch of different uh, areas of the social services kind of world from Indigenous services and Health Canada, et cetera, to talk about sort of a broad range of kind of programs that were on two particular First Nations that I work with and they work together. And there was a lot of talk around the table from civil servants, well, you need to do this and you should do this and you have to, for instance, fill out your, you know, um, seven different community assessments and whatever. And people just had a lot of opinions about how, you know, these First Nations governments needed to be running things internally. And I finally kind of stopped the conversation and I said, can everybody here just raise your hand if you've ever been to either of these two communities? And maybe one or two of them had been there out of, I would say, 25 and to me, it just seems like a, it should be a no-brainer that people who are purporting to govern and have authority over communities should have been to those communities. And so to me, like that's step one in cultural competency, and then maybe we can work from there. It seems to me that the whole system, you know, 
has systemic racism, you could say, baked into it, or it's just so entrenched, you know, whether it's the two departments or legislation like the Indian Act. If there was one thing you could do to change right now, what would that be? I, I, there's no question, I don't think, that it's baked into the system. We have huge, um, you know, huge bureaucracies that are devoted to regulating the lives of, frankly, a pretty small proportion of the Canadian population. Um, and I think to the extent that we're going to have that, uh, you know, there's going to be racism within the system. And I think if I could change something, you know, and this is like huge idea as opposed to little idea, but like if I could change something, I would think it would be extremely important to start taking concrete steps to giving First Nations people the ability to run their own lives and to control their own destinies. And from what I've seen, there's, you know, through the ranks of the civil service, and I've heard comments from, you know, people at all ranks and, and people in the political ranks as well, just an extraordinary mistrust that First Nations are able to do that. And um, to the extent that people can just start thinking about trusting First Nations to control their own destinies and lives a little bit more and start, um, you know, removing state control over their lives and their programs and replacing it with First Nations control. I mean, to me, that's that's how it has to be. And the other thing, as I said before, is like, let's try equality as a as a policy imperative in this country and see what happens. It's interesting you you mentioned trust, I mean, because the, the TRC defines reconciliation, you know, this ongoing process, right, of, of establishing, maintaining a respectful relationship. And, and trust is pretty key to any positive relationship. So what is the Crown going to need to do to gain the trust of First Nations people? Because I, I just don't think that trust is there. I mean, look, if I had the answer to that, I would probably have a very different job than drafting bank council resolutions in my attic <laughs> office right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, you know, when you think about it, to me, how do we get to trusting people? I mean, I think one thing that would be helpful is if if the Crown trusted First Nations people and maybe there some of that trust would be returned. But right now, I think we have a situation where the trust is absolutely completely shattered because for hundreds of years, the message is you don't deserve it. You don't deserve clean drinking water. You don't deserve to have a doctor in your community more than once a month. You don't deserve to take care of your own children. That's a pretty hard thing to recover from. And so, you know, when you talk about how the crown can start building trust as a, as an institution, to me, it does seem insoluble. And that's why I think like maybe they need to just understand that they actually have really mucked it up and haven't been doing it better than First Nations people were doing themselves. I mean, that's clear. First Nations had communities and polities and systems that were very functional until the Crown started kneecapping it all and taking the lands and resources away and taking control away. And, you know, I, I think maybe like the baby doesn't need to get thrown out with the bathwater, if you will, because it just doesn't seem to me like that there's an 
necessary reason to continue on in this way? Why do we need to build trust as opposed to just to kind of start dismantling it and thinking about a different way that we can operate? And I know some people will think that, well, that's a that's a banana's idea. We could never do that. But it also wasn't that long ago that it was that way. Um, so you know, if people can start thinking about ways to do that and and making positive steps in that direction, there may be some trust. I don't know. The people, the the individual people I work with within, within Indigenous services and, and CERNAC, the extent to which they trust First Nations and and show First Nations that they respect them and that they understand them and that they think that they can do it for themselves, those, those are the people who gain trust, uh, you know, in, on an individual basis. But you know, often that trust is broken by what the institution continues to do. So do we get, do we get rid of the Indian Act? Is that, uh, yeah, I mean, that I a think good place that, to start? Sure, I think that's a good place to start. I, it, like, I don't think you can just be like, tomorrow there's no Indian Act, because of course there's all of these mechanisms that are baked into the act and baked into, into systems and, and lands management control and, you know, people control and whatever, that you can't just be like, tomorrow it doesn't exist. But obviously, there's ways that you can do it to say, well, there's these huge aspects of it that, you know, we don't need anymore and start replacing them, start replacing them with First Nations control. But then the other thing that you have to do is not blow that system up and say, okay, First Nations, now you're on your own in your incredibly, um, you know, unequal socioeconomic circumstances that we've created. You know, you have to, you have to support people to, to run their own systems. But I mean, I don't think anyone really thinks the Indian Act's doing anyone any favors right now. So again, you you don't just blow it up in one day, but I think you need to start thinking about how to just move it out and stop regulating First Nations people, uh, stop regulating their identities and their lands. They, you know, they can do it themselves. Canada, you know, it, it holds itself out as being an adherent to the rule of law. And, and you've written articles in the past in which you have suggested that judges are applying the idea of the rule of law in a one-sided way. Aboriginal peoples are being held accountable, whereas the crown is not. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, that's something that I think uh, it's actually gotten like quite a bit, you know, there's been quite a few people talking about that recently. And I mean, that's something that I see every day. And it's the rule of law discussion is the thing that always comes up. Uh, you know, when there's protesters taking to the streets or the fields or the lands or the bush to prevent, you know, developments from going up. And then there's this criticism, well, we have to, people all have to, you know, abide by the rule of law and they, you can't be out with social unrest in the streets, to which I say there's, you know, a couple of responses to that. One of which being out in the streets or in the bush or blocking, putting yourself on, in the front lines is not, you know, usually the first uh, line of defense for, Indigenous people or anyone. It's the line of defense that you have when you don't have any other recourse. Um, and the reason why there's no other recourse is because the systems are broken and Canada, the provinces, whoever, they're not living up to the laws that the Supreme Court has set down, That even those modest protections that the Supreme Court has set out, you know, to sort of backstop the erosion of Indigenous rights and the erosion of sovereignty and jurisdiction on the land you know, those are not being respected in in really fundamental ways. And because of that, then people are taking to the streets. And what we're not doing is we're granting injunctions. What we are doing is we're granting injunctions to remove people from land so corporations can continue to pursue their corporate aims. And we're not holding states 
in provinces, gov uh, federal government to account to abide by the, you know, the protections that the Supreme Court has said that Indigenous people and Indigenous rights should have. Um, and so, you know, because of the, the operation of the way that power works, you know, the, the federal and provincial governments can push and push and push. And then we end up in a situation where we do have conflict, um, you know, physical conflict. And for whatever reason, um, you know, once it gets down to the injunction, they're always talking about the rule of law, you know, and applying that as against protesters and, you know, not talking about how the states need to be uh, living up to that as well. So what would it mean for the government to respect the rule of law when it comes to Indigenous peoples? Well, one thing I think that they do, and I don't actually work too much in the resource development sphere anymore, but um, certainly when I was doing it, and so, you know, what I see from my colleagues and whatever is that, um, you know, the Crown tends to risk manage uh, their consultation and accommodation processes. So they'll push, uh, you know, and assist proponents or what, you know, assist proponents, but that, you know, they make space for proponents and proponents will go far and, you know, the consultation will not be closely managed or it won't be sufficient or it won't respect what Indigenous nations want. Um, out of the process, they'll risk manage it in a way by sort of, I think, just saying to themselves, well, how likely is it that there would be, con I mean, I don't know that this is what happens, this is what I imagine happens, is how likely that this particular project is going to result in conflict? How likely is it that this particular First Nation is going to sort of take to the streets or take us to the court or whatever and manage it that way? Um, and as opposed to actually just kind of fulfilling their obligations in the first place without it being a risk management project on the part of the government. And I think I see that like in lots of different spheres across uh, across the country in terms of just not a priori deciding you're going to live up to your obligations, but deciding you're going to live up to your obligations when there's a risk of litigation or a risk of conflict. Maggie, I got one more one more question for you. Yeah. You've been you've been trained as a lawyer, you've gone through the the Western system of training lawyers you're working as a lawyer what's what's driving you what do you want to see happen in the future oh, so what's uh this is i have a great answer for this which is actually a quotation from one of my summer students who comes from one of the communities we work with and so great she said i didn't go to law school because i love the law i go to law school because i hate injustice and that's really struck it stuck with me um you know and she just said that to me over the winter time uh you know, what is the end game? I don't know. What drives me is the desire for justice. And I don't know where that takes me because I'm, you know, I'm not unfortunately confident that I'll see it within this lifetime. But I think trying my best to make some system somewhere, you know, more just as we move along is to me sort of the best that I can hope for. You know, the other thing that I'm really, have been really focused on, particularly in the past few years is, you know, trying to mentor Indigenous people to become lawyers to work within their communities and and fight for their communities in a way that um, you know takes the lead from communities as opposed to leading them along. So thinking about practicing law differently in a society where we have uh, you know First Nations that are really dependent on lawyers to vindicate their rights all of the time. So I don't know if that answers your question, but there it is. Uh, that's a, that's an awesome answer, Maggie. I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me. I want to thank you for your wisdom, your insight, your honesty. Jimmy Gwich. Miigwech. Thank you so much.
Welcome to the podcast, David. Thanks for joining us here today. Well, nice to be here, Brad. Appreciate the opportunity to, to speak with you. So, Dave, can you tell us, how did you come to do the kind of work that you do? What, what drew you to work in uh, land claims and treaties? Well, um, I grew up on, on the res um, community in uh, near Manitoulin Island, mid-northern Ontario, um, Whitefish River First Nation, actually. And um, I don't know, I guess when I started to get a sense of um, a bit of maturity and a sense of social justice, uh, it did occur to me that maybe law was a field that I could I could pursue to to uh, redress some of the issues that are affecting our people. I have managed to get some of the things done that I thought I, I could do, you know, in terms of advancing the interests of, uh, of our people. So it's been, been a decent run so far. So is there anything about sort of land claims and treaty work that, that drew you, as opposed to, say, doing criminal defense or family law or something like well, that? Well, when I started out, I didn't do land claims right away. In fact, I did a general practice when I started. I did pretty much anything that walked through the door because, well, because I was a young lawyer, because I wanted business, because I wanted a kind of a well-rounded experience. So I always, always plugged into those issues. Some of the work that I did when I started practice was with the uh, National Indian Brotherhood, kind of consulting type work. Uh, I don't know if you're, if you're around, and I did, I did some work for Parliament Parliamentary Commission on Indian Self Government. It was called at the time the Penner Report. I did the did yes. a report on the trust uh, on the trust relationship, and I mean that was kind of significant. I didn't actually do much in the way of land claims at that point in time, but I, you know, of course I, I was always interested in treaty and Aboriginal rights issues, and and I started to do some of the work probably I don't know maybe three or four years after I got into into practice, and something interestingly enough. Some of those Aboriginal rights cases that I started working on back then are just now coming to fruition after so many years, you know, like some of the work I started in the 90s. After, you know, with all your experience, how would you at this point in time view the state of the relationship between the Crown and Indigenous peoples? Well, it's improved a great deal. You know, when I started, we didn't have much in the way of, I was, of course, when I got called to the bar, was just almost the same time as Section 35 was was uh, being implemented. Section 35 of the Constitution Act, which recognized Aboriginal and treaty rights, existing Aboriginal rights and treaty rights. And that was a significant turning point. But even with that, um, courts still didn't, weren't open, you know? And, and certainly governments, uh, crown agencies weren't immediately open to to addressing um, Aboriginal and treaty rights issues. You know, it was was an was an exciting time because you know the system was still learning about these kind of issues. While it was it was a bit, I would say, uh, the system, the uh, judicial system, wasn't wasn't as receptive initially. I think we've we've come a long way and and. and a lot of the reason is because of the ability of our people to be able to 
enforce their claims in the courts. Some of the early decisions, as you probably know, Brad, bring a practitioner yourself, were defense cases, hunting and fishing defense cases. And really, I mean, while those cases were important, we're really just fighting for the ability to survive, you know, our people being able to pursue uh, livelihood hunting and fishing. But they weren't really the cases ought to be, you know, like civil civil litigation cases where which have, you know, huge commercial implications. It's moved uh, the crown, I think, somewhat. Still, not, I, I'm still not thinking we're there where where we ought to be in terms of the crown acting honorably in in ways that they should to deal with our rights given the nature of some of those important sacred agreements like treaty rights, they still would try to marginalize those things. They, the Crown still tries to marginalize the relationship, but there's been a lot of improvements, I guess I can say. How would you explain to your clients, you know, how do you explain to them why the government is fighting against them, you know, against their rights, against things they're entitled to? How, how, do, you, how do you address that with your clients? Good question, actually, and I hadn't really thought about it too much. I guess being Indigenous myself, I don't know, I never really had to explain it a lot because I understood where they were and they understood where they were and we kind of had a common sense of of our rights being not embraced, you know what I mean? Uh, The... the, uh, the Crown doesn't embrace our rights. Even after 1982, uh, when our rights became constitutionally recognized, they still didn't really recognize our rights. They certainly didn't, uh, what I say, what I say, embrace them. You know, there was that whole debate about whether Section 35 was an empty box or a full box. Of course, governments across the country uh, felt that Section 35 was an empty box. In other words, the recognition was really meaningless. And that's been the kind of approach of the crown, like right from the outset. Do you think some of that comes from the the TRC calls to action? Well, those are helpful, but we've had lots of, uh, we've had lots of reports over the years. TRC was significant for sure, because um, it started to, to expose the sort of the raw nature of the of the harms. Well, that started with RCAP because it talked about Indian residential schools and, and the residential school system. But TRC was was effective in in terms of communicating in a national sense the breadth of the harm that was caused, right? And it it uh, you know Things like talking about cultural genocide, those have had important impacts. Of course, that was a great, I mean, it was, it had great commissioners, um, um, Murray and Willie and uh, Marie. You know, they, they had such a good mix of communication abilities, legal abilities, they had a lot of credibility and, and did a great job. And they did a report which had was focused, well-focused, and 
And so it was it was effective in a way it was able to to bring focus to the harms on the people over the years and the importance of education and the importance of reconciliation. So I think, I mean, I, I say, uh, I said, I started out by saying, of course, there've been all these reports and they've, and largely over the years, they've been, so the reports been issued and they haven't been, some, I mean, they've, they've had some success, but they haven't been as successful as they ought to have been. RCAP was one, right? It should have been implemented, but it wasn't. I hope TRC gets as much traction or more traction rather. It seems to have had the traction uh, and maybe this was the strategy of the commissioners to kind of reach the public better, right? So it's it's been able to reach the public. And so the politicians have got to, have got to act. I'll actually, I'm going to ask you a couple questions about the calls to action. You, you noted the calls to action directed toward the legal profession. In, in 2018, you helped create a guide in collaboration with the, the IBA and the Advocate Society and the uh, Law Society of Ontario mm-hmm. to help lawyers working with Indigenous peoples. What, what drew you to working on that report? This was definitely a result of TRC, Call to Action 27. The Advocate Society was responding to that call to action, which calls on the legal profession to promote education within the profession. And so the Advocate Society decided in that one year that they should they should do something, right? So they did a number of things. They uh, provided funding for and promoted funding for scholarships for uh, Indigenous students. And one of the projects was to develop this guide for lawyers working with Indigenous people. And being on the board, I thought, that's a great idea. So uh, I, I contributed to the idea. It wasn't solely my idea, my idea. It was, I thought, a great idea. And I jumped on it at the time. And I said, well, I'll do whatever I can to help out. And and volunteered the people at my my firm to contribute to it. And called on all my friends across the country to help sort of develop this guide. So there was there was a pretty broad-based effort to to work on this, and it was intended to be had sort of a twofold purpose. One of them was to educate the legal public, lawyers, but also the also the judiciary on some of these issues, like the Royal Proclamation of 1763, the Niagara Treaty, treaties, Aboriginal rights. The other thing, the other kind of inspiration for for that document, referenced also in the introduction in that in that guide, was a paper written by uh, Justice Finch, Lance Finch, former Chief Justice of the BC Court of Appeal, about the duty to learn. Like if we deal with Aboriginal issues, his argument was, we deal with Aboriginal rights, Aboriginal title, treaty rights, which are based on indigenous uh, laws, then we really have a duty as a profession and as as judges to learn what those indigenous laws are. So that was kind of the other inspiration for that guide. What about, um, you know, civil servants, crown servants, call to action number 57 calls upon them to learn about the history of indigenous peoples, treaties, Aboriginal rights, indigenous law. 
uh, Aboriginal Crown Relations. It talks about skills-based training, uh, intercultural competency, and human rights, anti-racism. Um, is that is that a start, or or is that is that enough? Well, I think it's surely a start. One of the most frustrating things working as a lawyer for Indigenous peoples and in the land claims and treaty rights area is having to deal with with kind of an adversarial attitude on the part of Crown lawyers. It's changing. And there are some great Crown lawyers now who take a different approach to the, to the job. But it isn't, we're, like I said, we're not, we certainly aren't there yet. There's no reason why we should have to reprove treaties, for example, right? That we should have to reprove that that the Treaty of Niagara was the Treaty of Niagara, but we have we yet we have to do that every time we go to court and we want to set that information or that evidence or that those those sort of important developments in the legal history of Crown First Nation relations, Crown Indigenous relations. We need to re-establish those baselines, and we shouldn't have to. We should we should be able to assume that the law recognizes the Niagara Treaty as an important document or the Robinson-Huron Treaty as an important document that, and, and sort of the intent and purpose of those things. Although there are some, there is some progress in dealing with the Crown and some and progress in Crown attitudes, Crown civil servant attitudes. From my perspective, I don't think we're there yet. I still get, I get some, I still think that uh, dealing with or finding enlightened lawyers amongst Crown law offices is the exception rather than the rule. It's getting better, but it, we're not there yet. I also do some negotiations of these things. Negotiations, I think we find a little more enlightenment, but even there, the lawyers that I deal with, I mean, they're not all, they're not all uh, as enlightened as they should be, but it's improving. I'm, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase here. We had one of the TRC commissioners say, you, essentially, you can take the racist out of the system, but you still have a racist system. What else needs to change? You know, I, I'm not so sure about that. I'm not really sure. You know, I'm working on a, a few cases right now. I think the I think the judiciary's got to be prepared to be more forceful. You know, in the early years, as you probably know, the Supreme Court of Canada would, and even even the superior courts and the courts of appeal, they knew what the right thing was. They knew how they should decide, but they didn't want to force the the hand of governments too much, right? So it was a careful approach, like Delgamuk, for example. They made a ruling which was good, but then they decided they couldn't issue the the order that they ought to have, Declaration of Aboriginal Title. So they sent it back, you know, after, I don't know, 20 years of litigation and millions and millions of dollars. Well, now they're starting to be a little more, they're a little braver about issuing orders being less fearful about the implications of those orders. Like the the Chilcotin case, they did issue a declaration, the first of its kind on Aboriginal title. I think the courts have got to be more willing 
to be more forceful with government because governments, politicians, and the people that work for them are still, they still got too much room to maneuver, right? They got still too much latitude to, to avoid having to do things, to do the right thing. Uh, so I think probably more forceful um, uh, court decisions. We get, for example, uh, a child welfare case that went to the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. Um, there we have an example of, of uh, I think, an institution tribunal that's, that's prepared to force, that understands the, the, uh, the problems within that system, uh, the, the, I don't know if I'd call it toxic, but certainly it's, it's not healthy towards Indigenous people and Indigenous rights. I'm talking about uh, Indian Affairs, uh, what's called CERNA now, and ISC, I guess it is, Indigenous Services Canada, and Crown Indigenous Relations uh, Affairs. Um, they still don't have within their system a healthy attitude about the rights of Indigenous peoples. They're um, still pretty bent on, on uh, denial, undermining, and I guess, because I, I suppose uh, that the, the history of those organized, of that organization, really, Indian Affairs, is basically colonialist and, and racist. So the only way it's going to get fixed is if, if uh, tribunals and courts are prepared to take them on fully, like the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal did in that, in that Caring Society AFN child welfare case really imposed some serious uh, orders on, on, um, on the federal government and was um, willing to supervise, to re retain its jurisdiction, to make sure that, that government didn't wiggle out of their obligations. Um, and it's still, it's still uh, retains jurisdiction. And, and, and uh, I think that's an example of, of how, of what courts need to do. I think they need to be firmer and more diligent in dealing with, uh, with uh, organizations that, you know, are the sort of interaction point for indigenous peoples. You have those kind of organizations within, within the provinces as well. But in this case, it was Indian Affairs. Um, so um, I think I think basically um, they got to be sued, and and it's got to be uh, government. Uh, like I said, courts and tribunals have got to be got to be more willing to be firm with with the crown. So Dave, I've, I've, I've one more question for you. You've been, well, through the interview, you know, we've, we've learned about your experience. Uh, you've gone through law school, you've, you've worked as a lawyer for many years. Um, what, what, what gives you hope? What, what do you want to see happen in the future? Yeah, well, I, you know, 
um, getting close toward the, my, to the end of my legal career, I, I do reflect on these things. And, you know, when I started out, um, like I said, it was um, not as hopeful as it is now. There's a lot of things that have happened. Section 35, we had the Guerin case. Uh, I guess what gives me hope is the willingness of the courts and tribunals to be um, to be to be more open to recognizing the rights of Indigenous peoples. There's been really a lot of progress in the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, you know, you can just look at it at the at the progress of the uh, jurisprudence since this 1982. It's slow, uh, but it's but it is really moving the yardstick. And from that time period, from 1982 to the present, it's really the changes have been night and day, really. And you had to have been involved in the system, I guess, for as long as I have to to know that there's been progress. So I guess that that's sort of the thing that makes me hopeful. And the fact that there are a lot of indigenous, young indigenous lawyers who are more aggressive, they're, they're more confident, uh, certainly more confident than I ever was and probably more able than, than I'll ever be, all, well, I was ever. Uh, in terms of advancing the rights of Indigenous peoples. So I'm hopeful for that. Um, and then, of course, there are changes, like I said, within within uh, government. They're, um, they're starting to become more responsive. So I'm hopeful. I don't know if that, that answers your question, Brad. I'm, I, I'm just generally an optimist. When, when it comes to looking at whether our people are making progress, you know, we get up um, three or four steps forward. We do get some some backward movement from time to time. Some We lose sometimes in court. We, we lost a few in the Supreme Court of Canada, and it's sad. It's But you got to get back up and, you know, keep fighting. And, and so uh, I think we're, I think, we're on an upward trend, Indigenous people. I think we've got things going our way. People are, are starting also to see things more clearly for us. We got lots of support amongst the general public. People are becoming more educated, I guess you could say. And that's, that's helpful. Uh, Dave, that would... That was the answer I was looking for, but uh, yeah, and thank you very much for for giving me that uh, that honest honest insight, that honest answer. I, uh, I really appreciate it. I want to thank you, Jimmy Gwich, for all your thoughts on these difficult subjects, and I really appreciate you being here today. Okay, you're welcome. Good talking to you, Brad. My guests this episode have been David Nawagabo, founding partner of Nawagabo Corbier in Aurelia, Ontario, and Maggie Wenty, a partner with Ophius Clear Townsend in Toronto. We want to hear your stories about your experience as an Indigenous person with the legal profession, as a practitioner, as a student, or as an academic. 
Let us know on Twitter at at CBA underscore news, on Facebook and on Instagram at at Canadian Bar Association. You can hear this podcast and others on our CBA channel, The Every Lawyer, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes. And to hear us in French, listen to our Juris Branche podcasts. <laughs>